Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. When I was a student at CSU Chico back in the 1980s, a beer began to appear at friends' parties with a distinctive green label and a name that went straight to my heart as a lover of California's mountains, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. I'll never forget the first time I tasted it. I really wasn't a beer lover back then, but this was something really different. Ever since then, I have watched in amazement as the tiny brewery in Chico turned into a juggernaut, helping to ignite the craft beer revolution while still, amazingly, maintaining a commitment to being a company that always tried to do the right thing when it comes to how it treats people, the natural environment, and just about anything you can think of. Before we go any further, I need to point out that Sierra Nevada Brewing Company is an underwriter not just for the station that produces this show, but also for NPR. That said, my interest in producing this program has nothing to do with that and everything to do with providing you some insight into an American company that has breweries on both coasts, here in Chico, California, and in Mills River, North Carolina. Later on in the show, we'll meet the founder of Sierra Nevada, whose life story is literally an example of the American dream come true. We'll also visit with Mandy McKay, Sierra Nevada's Director of Social Responsibility and Sustainability, to talk about that very important aspect of Sierra Nevada's ethos. But first, to give us all a bit of Beer 101, one of the world's foremost brewing educators, Charles Bamforth. Charlie, also known as the Pope of Foam, is a distinguished professor emeritus from UC Davis, where he taught the art and science of brewing for many years. He's now working for Sierra Nevada as their senior quality advisor. Okay, so we've got um, a spectrum of listeners, I'm sure, right now. Ranging from somebody who doesn't care much about beer at all to somebody who maybe home brews and loves beer and passionately. Could you give us briefly a very simple beer 101 about how beer is made? Okay. Main starting materials are, are malt, hops, yeast, and water. The malt is, is germinated barley. This material is, is ground. The particles uh, are mixed with hot water. And what happens is the enzymes, the biological catalysts, that break down the starch in the grain and convert it into uh, sugars, fermentable sugars. And then the liquid, which is called wort, is, is separated out from the residual grains. Those spent grains go off to animal food, cattle food. And the liquid is boiled with hops that extracts bitterness and also some aroma and uh, sterilizes it as well. And that's how beer saved the world. And that's how beer saved the world, because uh, when you brew beer, there's this boiling stage and it kills off any pathogens. And then after cooling, it's mixed with yeast, which is a microscopic fungus. It's a living organism which takes those sugars and converts them into alcohol and carbon dioxide and some more flavor, some substances. Flavor comes from the malt as well. If anybody's ever had a malted milk ball or, or eaten cornflakes, they know what malt tastes like. And then uh, after fermentation, which takes several days, the beer is, uh, is matured in various periods of time and then is packaged. And you mentioned something, how beer saved the world. I remember a history of science class I took <laughs> many years ago at CSU Chico. And one of, my, one of the most interesting things to me was the role that beer played in medieval Europe. Because as you said, you couldn't drink the water back then without being subjected to pathogens. 
Yeah, well, there's a very famous episode that happened in uh, in London uh, way back when, when um, and before they really understood about pathogens, and people were were drawing water from a pump in London, and it was contaminated with the bacteria caused cholera, and people were drinking this and, and dying, but the people who were not drinking that water, they were drinking the beer from the brewery just down the road, they were fine. You know, literally, um, by drinking beer, people were saving their their lives. Um, so um, it's a long history of uh, of being uh, the world's favorite adult beverage. Can you go into some what's some of the really deep science? Because I know that fascinates me, and I know it drives Ken. What is some of the really deep science that goes into assuring that that a beer like, say, a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, every time I've had one for many years, they always taste exactly you know the same. There, I've never had one taste like. Well, this is weird. How do you get that kind of quality all the way and and consistency. What's some of the science behind that? Well, what you have to do is, first of all, uh, carefully choose and uh, measure the, 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 the state of play in your raw materials. So you've got to make sure the water is exactly right and uh, tastes right and it's got the right composition. It's very complex, different waters, different mineral contents for different types of beer. You uh, specify the malt, which malt you're going to have and how it should be produced and make sure it analyzes correctly. The same with the hops. You look after the yeast. Uh, yeast, uh, as I say, it's a living organism. You've got to make sure it's healthy and uh, you, you use it. Uh, many brewers, they recover the yeast from the previous fermentation and reuse it. Um, but you've got, because you get more yeast at the end of a fermentation than you put in. And so there's plenty to, to, to use, but you've got to make sure it's healthy, it's alive, you put the right quantity in you have got to feed it a little bit of oxygen you've got to feed the right amount of oxygen and so you basically um, look after your raw materials but then you have standard operating procedures you have processes procedures which um, are the same every time and you do things you control the temperatures you control the amounts of solids and liquids that you mix together. So if you do all of those things, because it is a very complicated process, it's a long way from, you know, barley growing on a, a field somewhere right the way through to, to beer as it's uh, uh, poured out by the consumer. Uh, it's a long journey and you've got to make sure that you uh, not only understand exactly what's happening on that journey, but you control it. And then you will, as you say, get the same beer every time and that's the ultimate definition of quality you know people say to me what what is quality and i say well what is a quality beer i say it's what you like <laughs> you, you there's beers you might like that i personally am not a big fan of and, and vice versa but what you gotta have is is the product that you expect i'd like to know from you why is a clean glass so important when you're going to go pour beer into a glass? And why should you pour beer in a glass instead of just drinking it out of a bottle? Well, I I, I realize a lot of people do drink their stuff straight out of the bottle. I, I remember I was up in Chester uh, in California with my wife, and, and there was a guy, he must have been about seven foot tall, with tattoos around his neck, and he's drinking a Bud Light straight out of the bottle. And my wife said, go and tell him. Um, but uh, each, to, each to his or her own. But uh, no, you should put it in a glass for, for several reasons. The first is 
if you want to get a full appreciation of, of the flavor, you really need to be able to, to smell the product because most of the flavor actually comes through the aroma, comes through the nose. And if you, you know, if you're, if you're holding a, a, you know, a narrow-lipped bottle to, you, to your lips, you, you can't really smell the beer. But if you pour in a glass, when you tilt the glass, you, you get a good whiff of that beer. Uh, but the second reason is is all to do with with the foam. Um, you know, I've been working, Dave, on on foam um, for more than forty years now. Isn't that sad? Um, and they they call me the Pope of foam. We've done a lot of work both in in Bass and and since I come to the states, showing that you know people expect to see a good foam on the beer, and if they don't get it, then they'll score it down. They drink with their eyes. And if you don't have a clean glass, then your foam is going to collapse. Um, you can tell if you've got a dirty glass. You, you, you go into a, a bar and they put, you put a beer into a glass and you look at the sides of the glass before you've started drinking it. And there's big, ugly bubbles, not foam bubbles, but bubbles that are on the side of the glass um, halfway down. Or, that's a sign of a greasy spot. That's not nice. And not only that, that, that grease that that dirt um oil fats and so on it's going to actually get into the bubbles and and, and pop them basically they're going to get big and bladdery and ugly bubbles and it's just going to collapse so the number one cause of failure for beer uh, foam is beer not being poured correctly so first of all you've got to pour it i, I like to say pour with vigor um, so you can actually release the, the carbon dioxide or some of it and make the foam in the first place. But then you want that foam to, uh, to survive. Um, so you don't, you don't want it sliding down the side of the glass really slowly so it doesn't make a bunch of foam? No. So what, no, what you've got to have is you produce a lot of foam in the first place. And then uh, what you've got are proteins that come from the grain and the, 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 the molecules from the hops that make the beer bitter they stick together, they go into the foam and they stick together and they, they solidify it, they make the foam stable. And now when you steadily sip your beer, you'll get those beautiful uh, rings of, of foam lacing the side of the beer glass. But if the glass is dirty, that, that's, that's not gonna happen. And if you go into the, the pub, for example, at Chico or the restaurant at the, uh, at the most beautiful brewery in the world, which is the Sierra Nevada Brewery in Mills River, North Carolina, you'll see that the beer is poured into glasses that uh, cause a stream of bubbles to rise on the bottom. That is called nucleation or beading. And you've got this stream of bubbles rising from the bottom of the glass. Um, it's a very pretty, lively scene, uh, but it's also replenishing the foam all the time. So the most important thing is whoever is uh, pouring that beer and serving that beer, they need to know how to wash a glass properly, make sure there's no detergent left on it, it's probably rinsed and then it's poured properly, put poured with some degree of energy to produce the foam. And then uh, it, it's something that, that should delight the, the consumer. So uh, it delights me anyway. <laughs> with beer, there's this like immense variety of beers, but could you take us through the basic types and explain, you know, what makes each kind? So like lagers, uh, pale ales, stout, porter, IPAs. What Could you just kind of explain what the differences are? Well, there are fundamentally two types of beer. Those are ales and lagers. 
and the, the, the difference between them is the yeast that's used. So ales are those beers that are fermented using a yeast called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But lagers, they're made with a yeast called Saccharomyces pastorianus. It's a very unusual yeast. It, it actually, you can't isolate lager yeast from, from nature. It doesn't exist in nature. It, it arose in a brewery probably in the last three or 400 years when uh, two different yeasts, an ale yeast and a, a type of wine yeast actually melded together and made a, a more complicated uh, yeast, which we now call Saccharomyces pastorianus. So fundamentally, we got ales and you got lagers. So um, and in each of those, there are different uh, categories. So if you take the ales, then yeah, pale ale, which is, um, you know, great example will be uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Um, uh, it's made with a, a fairly uh, strongly dried malt, which gives a, a rich, darkish, uh, darker coppery sort of color to the product. Um, and uh, fermented ales tend to be fermented at slightly higher temperatures. Um, um, and uh, you put some hops that are bittering hops into uh, the kettle to extract the bitterness but you add some hops to the to the finished beer um, to give what is called a dry hop flavor give that nice um, hoppy character and there are, there are there are hundreds and hundreds of different hop types of hops the number one growth location in the world for hops is Yakima in, in Washington state um, and uh, that dry hopping will give a, 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 a significant amount of, of hop character to a product, but not so much as you get in an IPA, an India Pale Ale. And the India Pale Ales are, are, are bigger, usually in terms of alcohol content, but also they have a lot more um, hop aroma as well. And we can further divide uh, the IPAs into so-called West Coast IPAs and East Coast IPAs. Uh, from where they originated. So the West Coast IPA, uh, something like a torpedo, uh, so-called because the beer is pumped through vessels that look like torpedoes, packed solid with hops, uh, and the beer is, is uh, uh, drawn through those, uh, those hops for several days to get a really uh, strong hop character and quite bitter and relatively bright, in other words, not, not cloudy. Uh, East Coast IPAs, sometimes called uh, New England IPAs or juice bombs or, you know, all sorts of names for them. But these are less bitter, um, but they're even more hop, hoppy, uh, very, very uh, beautiful hop characters, uh, you know, and different hops will give you different notes like uh, citrus or fruity or floral or piney or spruce and these sorts of flavors. And hazy great example of course will be hazy little thing and so less bitter than a product like torpedo but even uh, more fascinating uh, dry hop character now stouts they're they're made with more intensely roasted grain um for, you know a stout, famous stout of course would be something like guinness where they actually include some roasted barley in uh, the recipe to get you know the strong coffee mocha very uh, harsh characters in there now you know most stouts are not especially hoppy uh, porters are um, a step down from that in in respect of intensity of, of roast character but still 
uh, pretty pretty roast as well. But you know, there's any any number of, of ales. Um, there's an ale um, which looks like a lager uh, from Cologne. It's called Kirsch. It's an ale because it's fermented with an ale yeast, but it, the, the the processing is very cold, just like it would when you were if you were making a, a lager. In terms of lagers, then um, people get very confused about uh, that. You know, people think, well, lager, oh, that's like, uh, you know, all lagers look like Bud or Miller or Coors. And so it's, it's not so. You can have uh, Pilsners, which are very light in color, very lightly, gently dried malt. And there you get a subtle hop character called late hopping, where some of the hops are added late in the kettle boil to allow some of the more of the aromas to survive and not be boiled away and fermented cold and then aged for a, quite a period. That's the, the lagering is, is aging and storing of beer. But you can have black lagers, uh, which are called uh, Schwarz beers. And they, they are made with a proportion of very uh, strongly dried malt. You can have Roche beers, which are made with uh, smoked malts. They come from Bamberg in Germany and they, they to me, they taste like, uh, you know, uh, smoky bacon chips or something like that. But some people love them. You can get um, uh, box, which are fairly strong products with uh, uh, quite a high alcohol content invented by the monks. I could go on and on and on. But uh, well, yeah. that was going to be what I was just going to say. It's like the variety of different kinds of beer is almost it's almost like infinite. That's why they have like beer camp where people come up with, you know, their own concoctions and things well, the, the, and the, home brewers. It's just amazing how many different kinds of beers you could possibly make. Yeah, I, I teasingly say, uh, you know, what you got with, with wine, red, white and pink, um, but but with beer you've got. And, I, and of course, I don't really mean that, but I, I do remember being in a, a ca- cafe in uh, Belgium one time and there was an eight page uh, drinks list. And seven and a half pages were beer, and right at the end it said wine, red, white, rosé, um, <laughs> which 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 appealed to my appealed to my sense of humour and so on. But there is a, a an immense diversity of beers, and not everybody likes every beer. You know, I mentioned Roche beer, I, I'm you know, the smoky beer. I'm I'm not a fan of that. You know, I'm not a huge fan of sour beers, but but many people are, and long may that be the case. But when people say to me, I don't like beer, I, I usually reply, yes, you do. You just haven't found the one that you want yet. And it's out there somewhere. And it may be a beer that's that's got a lot of fruity character, literally because of putting fruit in there. there, there there's no end to the range that's, that's out there. It's like love. You've got to go find your soulmate somewhere out there. Absolutely right. Luckily, I found mine at university, so... Um, and uh, that's that's good. But uh, she's not a great beer drinker, actually. Uh, but but that's okay too. Well, I know uh, neither is Ken Grossman's wife. She's not. I remember the very first time I met Katie. I said, "What would you like?" She said, "No, nah, I, I like the company, but I I'm not a big fan of. I don't drink much, so that, and that's okay." Thanks to Senior Quality Advisor, Charlie Bamforth. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll find out about one of the most important aspects of the character of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, sustainability. Stay with us.
And we're back, and thanks for listening. Sustainability and environmental and social responsibility have long set Sierra Nevada Brewing apart from not just other breweries, but most businesses. They literally walk the walk and have done so for decades. Joining us to talk about that is their Director of Social Responsibility and Sustainability, Mandy McKay. Mandy, welcome to Blue Dot. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'd, I'd like to start out with that word, sustainability, because you hear it a lot. And I'd like to know, what's your definition of sustainability? Well, I'm, I actually want to just take a second to say thanks for asking the question that way. Um, you can imagine, I probably, I get that question a lot, and we get that question a lot at the brewery. But it's usually framed as, how sustainable is Sierra Nevada? Um, and that's a v- impossible question to answer because, um, you know, that kind of implies that there's like a number or a letter grade or a percentage that says, you know, this is, this is how sustainable we are as a company. So, and that's really not how sustainability works. So thanks for asking the question. <laughs> um, and so to answer it, you know, it's really an operating philosophy and a mindset that really touches every facet of how we work and all of our operations here at the brewery. And it's really about balancing the environmental, the social, and the economic needs of our company in this case. But you can really use that definition in that way of thinking about sustainability for any kind of system, you know, household, your neighborhood, your company, a country, whatever it is. Um, It's kind of a universal definition. And then we kind of think about it in a secondary way that goes a little bit above and beyond and outside of our four walls. And when we think about corporate responsibility more generally, uh, I like to think about it as operating in a way that meets the needs of the present without jeopardizing the ability of of future generations to meet their own. And that actually goes back to a UN report from the late 80s uh, when this idea of sustainable development first kind of made its entrance onto the global conversation. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of this, it feels really like heady and really big, but if you think about, you know, we as a company and our leadership and our board has always really kind of understood that broad connection, you know, that we're part of a local, regional, national, global system that all overlaps and our actions as individuals, as consumers, business owners or just companies at large, you know, our actions have real impact and implications now and in the future. So that's kind of in a nutshell, uh, how I think about sustainability and how the brewery thinks about it as well. Let's talk about some of the innovative things that are done there. Um, because a, a brewery, you know, by definition, it's, it's, it's pretty intensive. You're using water and you're using energy. Uh, you're, producing carbon dioxide, pretty much whatever you do, but, you know, in the brewing process that happens too. Let's talk about some of the big ones. Let's talk about energy because Sierra Nevada has always been uh, an innovator when it comes to things like, you know, fuel cells capturing heat during the brewing process to re repurpose uh, it. Talk about the energy usage at Sierra Nevada. Yeah. And so brewing does, because it is pretty resource intensive. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunities and ways we can make that better and reduce that footprint. And we have, that is something we're known for is kind of our long-term investment in on-site energy generation. So you mentioned the hydrogen fuel cells. We had those for many years 
and we're recovering heat off of those to then make steam and hot water. And we're doing similar thing now, although with a different technology. So we've, you know, for the last almost two decades, we've been thinking about on-site energy and whether it's fuel cells or micro turbines now, and, and then solar, of course, those are the things we're known for. And we have the largest solar array in craft beer, which is I'm pretty proud of. Um, and then, of course, all those things you mentioned around efficiency. So because brewing is so in energy intensive, uh, if there's an opportunity to recover heat off of a system, we're doing that. Um, so you mentioned the fuel cells and now our microturbines. Um, those things, while they're generating electricity, uh, they're also generating a lot of waste heat. And for a brewery, heat is a resource. So we're not just going to let that vent off and let it escape. We're going to capture that heat. We're going to use it to make hot water or steam that go back into the brewing process. Um, so any kind of opportunity we have to be efficient or close a loop, uh, we're doing that. And that's something we're known for and we've been known for, especially within the industry for a long time. Um, and then you mentioned CO2. So, yep, we're certainly generating a lot of natural natural CO2 through fermentation. Um, and that's, you you know, it's easy to just like let that vent to atmosphere and we could do that. Um, but it does make sense, especially for a brewery our size to actually capture that CO2 that's being naturally generated through fermentation. We capture it, we clean it up, we store it, and then we regasify it and use it throughout the brewery for a lot of different things. So you, we need CO2 to move beer from one tank to another. We use it to purge tanks. We use it to um, dispense beer. Uh, you know, like a draft line, you need CO2 to push beer. We also use it in our, our packaging lines. So there's all kinds of uses for that CO2. So rather than buy it and have it trucked in, uh, we might as well capture the CO2 that we're generating ourselves and reuse it. So we got a lot of kind of closed loop examples like that that go back to that idea of kind of just sustainability and efficiency. Yeah, it's like the second law of thermodynamics. Everything in any kind of process, you're, you're going to be generating waste heat. But by reusing it, that really does make much higher levels of efficiency. Right. And it's, that, it's taking that idea of waste streams, you know, is it could be a resource for something else. Is there some other way we can bring that back in? Or is there another process that might benefit from it? So we think about that a lot, um, especially within the brewing process. How about water? Because water is a tremendous resource. And in California, we're, of course, in the midst of a terrible drought. How, how are, what are some of the ways that you guys are very careful with how you use water? Yeah, water has been something on the minds of our, our leadership and our brewers for, for decades. Um, and especially, like you said, being in California, we're pretty used to thinking about, you know, it's a pretty important resource. We can't run our company and we're not successful unless we have water, period. Beer is 95% water and uh, we use a lot of water for cleaning and all kinds of things. So over the years, we constantly are looking for ways to reuse water or cut down our use, you know, in general overall. Um, and there's a few ways, a couple of cool things we've been doing there in the packaging line. Uh, we use water to rinse bottles before they're filled. That water used to go down the drain. This was maybe 10 years ago. Um, and back then we put in a recovery loop. So we capture that rinse water. So it's already been used to rinse bottles. We capture it. We use it in the filler. The filler needs water to cool its vacuum pump. So it doesn't need fresh water. It just needs water. So we can get a second use 
out of that rinse water before sending it down the drain, which offset about a million and a half gallons of water a year. So there's little, little loops like that that go a long way, little engineering fixes. And then in general, we're constantly fine tuning our cleaning schedules and our cleaning processes because most of the water used in a brewery is actually for cleaning. It's not really for making the beer. It's, it's all the cleaning you have to do to make sure you don't have microbes building up and that everything is you know, sanitary and, and hygienic. So we are looking at those cleaning schedules and the automation of those because we don't need to use more water than we absolutely have to. And then outside of operations, we've <laughs> taken the whole water conservation to really the whole facility in general. And so, you know, we used to have a huge event lawn. And while that is nice um, to have, uh, you can imagine how much water a lawn uses. It just doesn't make sense to be keeping a nice big green field in the middle of a, a mega drought. And we're probably not going to, you know, see the end of droughts in California. So uh, even outside of kind of our operations, we've really, we've always been trying to cut down on how much water we use. And then at our brewery in North Carolina, we have the complete opposite problem. <laughs> so it's been interesting thinking about water two different ways, because in North Carolina, they got more water than they know what to do with, which is something that's very weird for me as a native Californian who's used yeah. to, you know, only rain in the winter. And hopefully we get some rain in the winter. They have rain all year round. And so we took a very different approach to water out there. We've got rainwater cisterns, these big, beautiful cisterns that line the front of the brewery. We're capturing large amounts of rainwater. That water is used for toilet flushing and non-potable uses, so we don't use it in brewing. Um, but irrigation, toilet flushing, any other non-potable uses, we're using that water. Um, we've got permeable pavement out there, bioswells, a completely different approach to a brewery and a facility um, because the water situation is so different. How do you go about keeping track of all of this? Because one of the things that I've noticed at the brewery is you've got all these marvelous touchscreens and, and touchscreen technology where you can tap on it and see how much energy, you know, you're producing there at the brewery. How, how do you go about keeping track of all this? Yeah, love that question because um, it kind of goes back to that old adage, you know, if you can't conserve something or be more efficient unless you're measuring it, right? And so we spend a lot of time tracking and measure, measuring and monitoring what we call KPIs, so key performance indicators. Um, and there's a whole suite of sustainability related KPIs that we look at on a regular basis. Um, so energy, water, waste, CO2 and emissions. Those are things that we look at regularly and we're tracking those and we can see month to month how we're doing, we set targets. Um, but the measuring and the tracking is really important because you don't know if you're making progress. You don't know if the things that you're putting into place are actually working. Um, so we do spend a lot of time with meters and spreadsheets and <laughs> tracking all of that to know that we're you know, actually doing what we think we're doing. You also deal a lot with social responsibility. Can you maybe briefly tell us about some of the things that the brewery does to be socially responsible you know, there with your employees and the community? Yeah, so I think taking that Again, that kind of view of sustainability as being environmental, social, and economic. Um, you know, we've always approached our employees as our one of uh, probably our most important resource. Um, so we think a lot about making sure employees have what they need to do their job. Are they learning? Are they getting paid well? Do they have access to good health care uh, and benefits? So that's something we've always been dedicated to. And then even on the environmental programs that we have, you know, there's usually a social 
uh, lens that we're looking at that through. So if we have a, you know, award-winning zero waste program, which we do, that is positively impacting the community in which we work, which is then building a better community for our employees and our suppliers up and down our supply chain. So there's, there's kind of those like triple, double and triple benefits to the things that we're doing that come through in, in the social piece as well. But then kind of outside of operations, we also do a lot of advocacy. So I spend a lot of time thinking about the policies that need to be in place at the state and federal level to support the long-term sustainability initiatives and goals that we have. So it's less about maybe our operations, but it might be about, you know, greening California's electricity grid so that any electricity we still have to purchase uh, is coming from a cleaner grid. So again, that's part of that social responsibility side of going a little bit above and beyond just our four walls uh, and thinking about that social piece as well. Okay, and finally, um, tough question, but what's your favorite aspect of working on on this kind of thing there at the brewery? <laughs> um, wow. I mean, I feel pretty lucky to work just one at a brewery because I think most people think it's really fun, and it is, so I'd have to agree there. And the fact that I get to, you know, make beer a more sustainable industry and certainly a more sustainable company. I mean, it's really combining the best of both worlds, in my opinion. Well, Mandy, thanks so much for spending the time with us to talk about uh, the work on sustainability that's been going on since the inception, really, of the of the brewery there. Yes. And I will just add that, um, one, thanks for having me. I love, I love the show. I'm a huge fan. I have my solar system earrings on today, just so you know. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> that's nice. And there is a really great interactive map on our website that you can actually kind of click through all the fun sustainability things that we've been doing and we've implemented over the years. And you can click through and see more information on all of those. Oh, cool. Thanks to Mandy McKay, Sierra Nevada's Director of Social Responsibility and Sustainability. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll talk to the man who helped spark and sustain the craft beer revolution in the United States, Ken Grossman. And we're back. Our next guest needs a longer introduction than we have time for. Suffice to say that without Ken Grossman, the craft beer revolution that has put so many interesting beers on the shelves and taps around the world may not have happened. He's the founder of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in Chico, California, and he also happened to grow up just a few blocks from me in the San Fernando Valley, so he's got that going for him, too. Ken Grossman, welcome to Blue Dot. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I'm glad to be here. I'm a big fan of your show. Oh, thank you so much. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of everything that you guys do at Sierra Nevada. Just just love it. Uh, can you tell us about your very first experiment brewing beer? Yeah, so there weren't a lot of places to buy ingredients, although um, in that era, you could go to a hardware store and buy a crock and some malt syrup and some yeast, uh, a little bit of a carryover from Prohibition days. Uh, when people uh, you know, brewed beer in their in their homes because you couldn't buy it, um, so it was available, but the quality and the, the range of ingredients was very very limited. 
my neighbor down the street, Cal, um, he was uh, friends with somebody who worked at one of the major breweries. And so he could get uh, fresh hops and yeast and malt and, and uh, get great brewing ingredients, but they weren't really very uh, available for most home brewers at the time. Uh, I moved to Chico in 1972 after I got out of high school and continued my home brewing hobby. And I would make treks down to the Bay Area where there were uh, a couple of established home wine shops and home beer shops. And so I'd buy my supplies down there. And then uh, around 1976, I decided um, you know, I wanted to open a little shop in Chico to sell home brewing ingredients. So uh, opened the homebrew shop and um, sold uh, grapes uh, that were sourced uh, up in the foothills of, uh, of our area, actually up by Manton and a few other places. They had vineyards and um, sold grapes and then started selling uh, malt and hops and uh, teaching people how to homebrew. And then within a couple of years, I decided I wanted to be a professional brewer. So I put my homebrew shop up for sale and wrote a business plan in 1978 and started to fabricate equipment out at U College to, to brew beer. Uh, I had enrolled in the chemistry department um, when U College was still in Durham at the old campus and studied chemistry there and then later on at Chico State, but uh, went back to Butte to learn those practical skills of refrigeration and welding and everything I thought I needed to, to learn to build a brewery. I, and your interest in chemistry and your, your interest in science and nature uh, is what really I find compelling because you, you take that curiosity about the natural world and then you're applying it uh, and your, your skill with being able to just cobble things together. You, you literally like traveled up and down the state, you know, raiding like dairy farms to get equipment. Tell us a bit about those early days and, and having to kind of learn as you go and, and, and get scrap materials. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in 1978, when I was starting to want to open a brewery, uh, besides not having any money, there really wasn't a source of information on how to, to build or, or run a small brewery. So I, was fortunate enough that we lived close to UC Davis, so I, I went down and spent a, a lot of days in the UC Davis library, and they taught brewing science, and they still do today, so I befriended the professor and a number of the grad students who were going through the brewing program, um, and at that point in time, if you were a, a graduate brewer from UC Davis, you got a job at a major brewery, but the people who were in the program, you know, knew brewing science, and so they were a bit of our mentors, and then I studied and read and, and photocopied journals from the 50s and 60s. And so our level of technology was really a little more primitive um, than a modern brewery of that era would be. It was more like a brewery of the 50s and 60s. So a lot of manual equipment and hand valves and, and not a lot of automation. And just uh, in, in reading and looking, um, I, I figured out that, you know, this is basically just a, a glorified version of my home brewing setup so i just had to make bigger tanks and um, bigger pumps and pipes and things like that and the dairy industry was really a pretty ideal industry to learn and, and to adapt their equipment um, they had a, a very high hygiene standard so dairies are 3a approved and use a lot of stainless steel and polished pipe and, and things that are ideal to uh, keep the sanitation level up in a brewery and so I just adapted uh, 
dairy tanks and dairy pumps and um, a, a lot of their uh, equipment to build my brewery out of. And, and what had happened in our industry in the U.S. brewing industry is after prohibition had ended, almost a thousand breweries sort of reopened. Uh, Pre-prohibition, there was thousands of breweries, but after prohibition, um, these small breweries opened up and they were struggling to compete against the major U.S. breweries. And so they went out of business at a pretty rapid rate. And the year I wanted to open up um, around 1980, uh, that was about the low point. There was um, only about 40 breweries left in existence. And that included all the biggest as well as the smallest breweries uh, in this country. So couldn't borrow any money. No banker would loan us uh, a, a cent. It seemed like a really bad uh, venture to, to loan uh, a small aspiring brewer who had no history of being in the industry and really uh, a 20-page business plan that didn't really make much sense. So we really had to build everything and cobble things together. There, there was uh, just no budget to buy anything new. When you think about it, you, you came along at in a way, what would seem like a very unlikely time to be starting this. But when you look back on it, it's kind of like you being the right person with the right dreams and the right kind of tenacity at exactly the right time. Because this, you and some of your fellows, fellow brewers, you, you started this revolution of you know craft brewing in the United States that is, you know, there's young people today that, you know, that have, have no idea that back when we were growing up, there, there wasn't much choice in the beer market. No, really, pretty much there was one style of beer that most everybody drank. And, you know, even though there were a, a number of brands out there, uh, all the beers were pretty much in the same vein. They were light lagers, not a lot of hop character, uh, four or five percent alcohol. Uh, the flavor was um, diluted down with either corn or rice as the adjunct to sort of make them a little bit uh, less characteristic Um very mild. And so, you know, the craft brewing revolution really was, was founded on the fact that, uh, you know, beer um, historically around the world, uh, even at that point, had a lot more flavor and character. If you would travel to England or to Germany, you would get beers that were you know, very flavorful and, and had a lot more going on than, than what we were brewing uh, during that time in America. And so six of us opened up between 1977 and 1981. There were six upstart brewers. Most of us were home brewers as our background. So I think five of the six of us were hobbyists and only one person had a brewing degree. And uh, unfortunately today, uh, the, the five that started out with me, they're all out of business and, and we're the, the last of that first era of craft brewers in America to still be in business. I was listening to an interview with Clay Thompson from the, the Golden State Warriors the other night, and he said something that made me think of you and your story. He said, no one is self-made. Everyone has been helped along the way. Um, could you talk a bit about like some of the people who you know, really did help you along the way, including your family and you know, guys like, like Fritz Maytag from Anchor Steam Brewing Company that you know, helped you with all the hard work that you've done and all of, all of what you've built into this company. You still had people along the way that helped you, and especially your family. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, there were lots of sacrifices and, and lots of long hours. And, um, you know, I, I credit uh, um, my education at both Chico State and, and certainly Butte College as being really instrumental in, in me learning 
basic skills. And um, I, I took chemistry uh, from George Boggs, who um, later went on to, I think, uh, represent all the community colleges uh, pretty much in the United States. So he was really a great teacher and mentor and, and great person. He helped me get a, a passion uh, about chemistry. And then um, as I was starting to you know, want to brew beer commercially, I, I did reach out to Fritz Maytag at the Anchor Brewery. And uh, Fritz had purchased a, 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 a failing, one of the last small brewers uh, in California, um, the Anchor Brewery. And it had been you know, around for quite a few years, but Fritz invested a lot of money and reinvented the brand. and really sort of showed that American beer could stand on the world stage as far as um, quality and flavor. And, and so he sort of charted a path for craft brewers to follow that, you know, you needed to brew a premium product, needed to have character, and you needed to charge a, enough money that you could survive as a small brewer. And then even the big brewers at the time, um, you know, when I had a problem with um, you know, getting yeast or a technical problem or, or mauled at times, I could call any of the major breweries and at least the technical people and, and leadership were normally very open and helpful to support somebody who's trying to get into the industry. So I had a lot of people help me along the way. When you look at where Sierra Nevada is now and these incredibly uh, you know, state-of-the-art, world-class facilities that you've built, uh, what are what are some of the things that you are most proud of as far as Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in, in Chico and North Carolina? Well, we, we've uh, come a long way from our, our early years, that's for sure. So uh, we continue to, you know, invest in our people. Um, we have spent uh, a lot of energy and resources and continue to in science and technology. Uh, I know that's uh, something you're, you're very interested in, but we continue to always try to raise the bar for ourselves. Um, I've said to, to my folks for years that, uh, you know, good is not good enough, that there's always places we can improve as an organization and as, as brewers. And so I think just, you know, continuing to, to strive to get better and to learn and to you know improve what we do, um, you know certainly on the environmental front we we work hard at that. We've got uh, a, a lot of uh, focus on uh, investment in energy conservation and energy production. You know, our Chico Brewery has over ten thousand solar panels, and we've got Tesla storage batteries and cogen gas turbines, and uh, we're always looking at ways to you know improve and lessen our footprint. So that's also uh, quite important to us. Uh, could you just briefly tell us about how much science and your involvement with using technology uh, has evolved the craft of brewing beer there? Boy, um, you know, there's been uh, you know, huge strides in uh, brewing science. Um, as I mentioned, UC Davis has, has been um, at the forefront of that uh, for quite a few years, and I've known uh, the three professors who have taught that program, and actually uh, Charlie Bamforth, the, uh, the, the last professor, uh, now works for us on a part-time basis as a, as a high-level technical uh, advisor to us, and so I've learned a lot, and the, the science of brewing has really come a long way, instrumentation analytical instruments um, you know we've got uh, 
some of the most state-of-the-art equipment in our labs, uh, multiple gas chromatographs, and we have uh, very sensitive instruments to look for things like iron and copper and calcium. Uh, we have uh, ICP, uh, which allows us to, to look at really parts per billion of some of those um, metals. And some of those actually play an important role in beer flavor stability and in fermentation and things like, like that, that we really didn't understand their roles uh, probably you know, 10, 20 years ago, um, the, the science was just starting to emerge that um, things like, um, like iron are really quite important in the flavor stability of beer. So we've learned a, a lot and beer continues to you know, get better and more flavor stable and, and more interesting. And then on things like hops, the amount of uh, flavor uh, research that's been done on uh, the aromatics of hops has, has been um, just a, an amazing field of science that's, uh, we're still learning uh, a lot about the hundreds of, of aromatic compounds that different varieties of hops contain. 10, 20 years ago, really, there was very limited science on, on some of that just because the instrumentation wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. Uh, some compounds are in the parts per trillion range that uh, still have a, an aroma impact on on the beer. So um, yeah, there's there's a lot still to discover, and we've discovered a lot. Yeah, that's the fun thing is that there's always more to learn. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's an ongoing science. I mean, the, what fascinated me early on was sort of the the alchemy of the process of taking you know a, a grain, uh, which barley is the one that's most commonly used in brewing, but you can brew with oats and wheat and and other grains as well, and yeast and water and and some hops and produce something that is just uh, you know an amazing combination of those things and and uh, has uh, a lot of satisfaction turning those raw materials into uh, beverages that people enjoy. I had one last question: do you, do you still get a thrill when somebody tastes one of your one of your beers, and maybe they don't know who you are, and you see the reaction where they go, "Ooh, I really like this." <laughs> yeah. Um, absolutely. I, I, I uh, just uh, today at lunch, sitting down, uh, uh, having lunch and listening to a table talking behind me about uh, their experience tasting beers uh, uh, of ours that they'd never had before. So, yeah, I get to uh, get a kick out of that. Well, that's, that's awesome. Well, Ken, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. It's been great speaking with you as well today. Thanks again to our guests from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Senior Quality Advisor Charlie Bamforth, Director of Social Responsibility and Sustainability Mandy McKay, and the founder of Sierra Nevada, Ken Grossman. Special thanks to the brewery's ambassador extraordinaire, Terrence Sullivan, for his kind assistance. If you ever get to either Chico, California or Mills River, North Carolina, I highly recommend getting a brewery tour. The art and science of brewing beer is fascinating. And if you don't like beer, as Charlie Bamforth put it, you just haven't found the right one yet. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Our theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.